Welcome back to the Make and Tain podcast. This week on the podcast, I'm joined by Joey Salmingo, ex-chef turned TV host and founder of the Audi Foundation, Fate. Joey sadly lost his sister, Joanna, back in 2017 due to the ice cream containing cashew milk. This is a really sad episode hearing kind of what happened to Joanna. So if you suffer with allergy anxiety, this episode may be triggering at times. Here's what to expect in this week's episode. And I screamed at the top of my lungs here here and then they had driven right by but i realized now that it was because the paramedics were right behind them so they just came just to make sure that just in case the ambulance got stuck somewhere so that that's why it happens that way just from a like this decision that i made was that i have to i have to make sure that my parents are okay and that everybody around us is okay so i'm going to take the reins here i'm glad i got around to sharing joe's story because honestly it's just so powerful and raw you kind of really get a sense of what the family has been through and why Joey has made his mission with fate to make a difference. This podcast episode is also available on YouTube as well, so I'll make sure to leave a link in my description if you want to give it a watch. Just before I jump in the podcast, you know, when you do your food shopping online, like a lot of the food now has that kind of may contain like labouring and it's really hard to kind of try like different cuisines. So I'm so excited that I partnered up with Good It's Gluten Free. And they do free from wraps and meal kits like hoisin, um, fajitas, tandoori tikka, katsu curry, which is completely free from tree nuts, peanuts, gluten, milk, egg, and sesame, which even mum said <laughs> the other night, she was like, I can't wait to try that one out. So yeah, it's great to try loads of different cuisines when you've got an allergy. And if you guys want to check out Good It's Gluten Free, it's available in Asda. I'll also leave a link in my description of the podcast as well if you want to check it out. Let's jump into the podcast. How you doing, Joey? Doing well, Daniel. Thank you so much for having me here. Really. Thank you so, you know, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Obviously, it'd be great, obviously, kind of talk about, obviously, a bit about your journey, obviously, being an ex-chef and TV host, but also kind of the Fate Foundation and kind of the tragedy which ha- happened to Joanna today. So, but if we start from kind of the very beginning for the listeners, can we talk about a bit about like, an introduction to yourself? Yeah, yeah, no problem. So, hi, I'm Joey Selmingo. Um, where the story begins, uh, where where it kind of attaches to everything is so for I guess for the first 15 years of my adult life where I when I could start working uh, I worked in restaurants I started at McDonald's uh, working fast food I think that was almost everybody's first job in North America and then uh, you know I, I I stayed in the restaurant business I worked at various different corporate restaurants throughout my uh, teenage years um, ended up going to chef school um, because that was well first of all I was a troubled youth so <laughs> I think cooking was the only thing that kind of kept me out of trouble, uh, which is a very common story, believe it or not. And um, I I cooked professionally for, um, I want to say maybe two, almost two decades, um, going from corporate restaurants. And then in the latter part of it, I partnered with uh, some friends of mine and we ran um, two restaurants, one after the other, not two at the same time, but uh, we did the independent restaurant tour thing for a little while. And then I, and in between that time, I'm a multitasker. Um, I actually fell in love with, it actually started with music, um, which enabled me to go to, um, uh, to school to become an audio engineer. So all the while I was, uh, I was chefing, I was actually in film school learning how to put, um, uh, music and sounds into television. And then I fell in love with television. So, 
I, I had many interests, as you can see. Um, and, you know, not to elongate the story too much. So eventually, uh, along the way, I found myself um, wanting to pursue film and television professionally. Um, and that brought me to, I guess, the last decade of my life where I've been doing it professionally. Um, and more recently, you know, I've, 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 I started at the bottom, as they say, um, and I did, you know, I was a commercial actor for a bit. <clears throat> And uh, uh, found myself selling coffee and, and you know, f fun random things. And then, and then somewhere along the lines, um, I found myself literally selling things on television. And um, I was on the shopping channel for five years. So the, the equivalent, I guess, in the UK is QVC. Um, yeah, so I was on there for five years. And that gave me my live television experience because everything was recorded previous to that. And the, was that, a, diff, was that a, a completely different experience then? Obviously, like doing it live in comparison to obviously where you can edit and cut it to make you, look, you know, like tell a certain way. Was it was that a lot? A lot would say more difficult doing it live. Definitely more difficult in the beginning because you're going from being able to make mistakes and say, okay, well, let me start again, to you got one shot at the. It's kind of like theater, right? You only have one shot at it on on in, in theater so it's the same thing with live television um in that respect even though it was as frivolous as you know selling bed sheets and stuff like that um but it did give me a lot of experience doing live and then uh again not to elongate the story too much i i found myself uh finding other opportunities to do live um which brought me to doing entertainment so i was able to you know do the oscars red carpets and visit the grammys and do a lot of things in hollywood um, and that, <clears throat> that was, um, that was more recently, you know, like I was doing that professionally. Um, I was living in Los Angeles for, I'm from Toronto, by the way, uh, but I was living in Los Angeles the last couple of years. Um, so needless to say, I had a very busy and lucrative lifestyle just given, um, everything that I've done in the past, but obviously more recently, you know, doing Hollywood news, um, it is very up to the minute, up to the second, anything happens. It's so, yeah, it sounds like that. I remember I kind of, I've read your bio now a few times and I was like, you seem like a very busy guy. Like, I mean, with, with the whole like cooking, where did that kind of come from? Was that through your family? Were your family kind of big cooks and that kind of, that passion kind of got passed on to yourself? You know what? My dad uh, was always a big cook in the family. My mom too, but my mom actually prefers baking over cooking, but my mom's also a great cook. So both my parents were great cooks growing up. And, you know, I kind of found myself just being interested as a, as a, as a, as a youth, um, just being interested in what my dad was cooking, what my mom was baking at the time. And, you know, combine that with uh, just just being trouble, troubled in, in my teenage years, um, you kind of just fall back to it because it's, it's um, it just a it keeps you distracted and it's not as um, mundane as sitting at a desk, which you know not to knock anyone that sits at a desk, but for me that someone that was had a very short attention span, um, it was it was a great thing for me. So we have this uh, thing in in Canada. It's called a co-op program, um, and it's usually in the later years of high school, and it was strictly reserved for you know, troubled youth like myself, you know, kids that didn't go to class and just didn't do their homework. So they actually put you in the workforce and that allowed us to sort of get some real world experience. So they actually put me at a hotel, a hotel kitchen. And that's where I actually learned all of my skills. And this was all before I went to chef school. 
So I had a very early start at learning the ins and outs of running kitchens uh, and learning to, you know, put ingredients together and whatnot. Yeah, well, I think what was really interesting, obviously, you went to Toronto Film School as well. And obviously, you had lots of experience kind of behind the lens. So was it was it quite an interesting shift then, obviously, from kind of working behind the lens to obviously get in front of the lens? Was that a natural kind of, was that something you you always quite enjoyed, being in front of the lens and obviously presenting and hosting? You know what, it's, it's so funny. I I think back many, many years when I was a kid, and my dad had this little Sony Hi8 camcorder, and um, I, I remember distinctly setting it up at home with my sister, and I, I would do fake newscasts on a cardboard <laughs> box, and I would That's report amazing. about nothing like i don't know it was just, it was the dumbest things at the time yeah and and i remember that i'm like wow i had no idea that that would transpire into my adult life into my professional life but also yes i i think it was always in my blood if you ask my friends i think they would tell you that i was always an attention seeker growing up um and you know what what bigger platform than to be on national television so yeah i think it was just in me it's quite, it's quite interesting. It's quite funny when you hear about these vloggers now. Like, I mean, the, the really, really successful ones were doing it as a kid, like you said, like 12, 13 with a handheld camera talking absolute nonsense to the camera. But now they've built a massive platform off the back of that and made a lot of money along the way. Um, so yeah, it's quite interesting that kind of uh, that passion from a young age. So when, when you did decide to then to kind of move to LA, was that more of a, a career opportunity for you um, in terms of being on TV and getting on the on the big shows I know you worked with E as well was that was that like the opportunity to kind of so over over the last um I want to say what's it 2020 now I guess in the last five years I guess you could say um I I had a lot of opportunities to travel for work so I did uh, very early on I went to Asia and did a, an, a reality show I was a producer um and my cousin who lives in the United States lives in Los Angeles um she is a very high level uh, production manager within the NBC Universal um uh, I guess, organization. Uh, so she presented me with a couple of opportunities over the years saying, hey, do you want to come down and 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 hang out, first of all? And then it turned into, hey, do you want to uh, come and, and see how we do things? And then eventually those opportunities came to being uh, on camera, even with the people that I met down there um, in, in other aspects. So I was on and off between Toronto and Los Angeles um, at, right at the beginning, obviously, which turned into... Uh, you know what? I'm 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 wanting to seek more opportunities here. Uh, so why not? Uh, you know why not make the move? So I it was it was very timely because uh, my my best friend, who also also my business partner, producing partner of mine, he had just purchased a house in Los Angeles with his wife. Um, so at the same time, we kind of planned it. Whereas like, well, you know what? We're we need we're going to move on this day um so let's plan it so he and his wife or his wife ended up flying over um i, I guess a month in advance and then we packed as much as we could into my car and then we drove the two of us yeah we had a, we had a great road trip uh it was the two of us and we drove from toronto to los angeles uh it was a it was an epic experience for the both of us because we had grown in the industry together, but we also were continuing in the industry together and obviously also great friends as well. So it was a great experience. 
Yeah, I mean, it's quite interesting as well. Obviously, you obviously done some cooking shows as well. So obviously that whole experience of obviously being a chef, obviously you kind of use that being on show. I know you did a show like off the menu. They've always, for some reason, television and food have always intertwined, like they've always woven together. No matter how much I try to stir away from food, because I, like being a content creator, I'm like, oh, well, I got to stick to one thing. So I'm like, okay, well, I'll, the food thing is great, but that's behind me now. So let me focus on doing entertainment and television. And no matter how much I try to steer away from it, t food always finds a way to intertwine itself with my profession. So I said, you know what? Let it be. Right. <laughs> Great to kind of get a bit more kind of a background about yourself and kind of obviously being this um, a TV chef and obviously a host. Um, but obviously that all kind of come to halt in August of 2018 um, following the tragedy of what happened to your sister, Joanna. Um, could we paint like a bit of a picture of what happened on that day? Because obviously she went out for an ice cream um, with her mum. I'll, I'll go a little bit more detailed into it because there's so many, there's so many little details of the story that all just kind of intertwine with it with everything so um as i mentioned uh i was living in los angeles at the time and um my agent had called me and said can you come back to toronto for a week or two weeks because um the, the there's a network that would like to see you for a particular show so i said sure no problem I'll fly down, uh, you know, I'll, I'll set a two week time limit for myself and, uh, and I'll fly down. So I ended up flying back home, um, obviously staying in my family's house because I had already sold my apartment here in Toronto at the time. And, um, yeah, so I was living at home for two weeks. It was great. You know, I, I hadn't seen them in a while. It was a, it was a good time to be, to be home. Um, and I had gone through sort of the motions with that particular story. So I met my agent, I met the, the network and blah, blah, blah. And they were, they were coming to a decision. They were making a decision of whether or not they were going to pick me or this other person. Um, and then the second week was coming close to an end. And I called my agent. I was like, I like, what's the story here? Because I have to go back. So she contacted the network and they said, look, just give us a little bit more time. We're just trying to figure things out. So I pushed my flight another two weeks. So this is, this is like the end of June. Yeah. So this is, this is June now. Uh, sorry. I arrived in June um, and now I pushed it. So now we're into July, right? So mid July. Um, and again, that, that two weeks had passed. In the meantime, I'm here just, you know, having a great time visiting my friends and saying, oh, yeah, you know, I'm here for a little while. Let's get together. Um, and then my agent calls me again. And she's like, they need, they need like a week and a half. They need like one more week to figure things out. And then, you know, they're really sorry. So I pushed my flight another week. I pushed it one more week. So now this takes us into the last week uh, no, sorry. This takes me into the first week of August. Right. So, um, yeah, so it was, again, I was just waiting here, right. My, all my stuff and my, you know, my car and everything's has been sitting for over a month now back in LA, August 8th. Right. So this is like going into the first week of August now, August 8th. Um, my sister 
so uh, sorry, I'm going to go back a little bit because there's a little bit to the story. So because I had come home, um, I had to commandeer my sister's car, right? But that was fine because my sister had the same routine. She So she was working uh, two jobs. She worked at, um, she was a supervisor at a drugstore. Um, and then she was also um, a receptionist at a hair salon. So what I, the routine was is I would drop her off at the hair salon in the morning. Um, and then her boyfriend would pick her up, take her to the second job if she was working that day. Um, and then her boyfriend would take her home, right? And that was the routine every day. So I drop her off in the morning. I could do my thing, whatever. Um, so that day, same routine. I dropped her off at work. And then her boyfriend, Mark, um, was coming home, uh, coming back here to drop her off. And in between picking her up from work, they had picked up some Greek food at a place that they always go to, right? And then they had gone to Whole Foods to pick up dessert. So the thing about my sister, especially around that time, is she was very health conscious. She had cut out tons of things out of her diet just to be healthier. She had uh, eczema, a very, very like serious eczema. So she had like, you know, the dry skin and stuff all over her arms. Um, it had there was parts of it on her face at some uh, as well. Um and uh, so anyway, she had cut out red meat, she had cut out dairy, she had, she was eating more greens, she was just trying to be healthier. And, and, and she actually was in the best shape of her life at that time, right? So it's was, it was working for her. So she had gone to Whole Foods to pick up dessert. And Whole Foods at that time was featuring a new dessert that was serve yourself in the cold section. Um, it was called mochi. Now, mochi is a Japanese dessert. Um, there's typically ice cream on the inside. It's made of like a spongy rice on the outside. Um, like it, it's, a, it's a cake, but made from rice. It's not rice on the outside. So it's a rice cake on the outside. Uh, it's, I'm glad you explained that because I don't think in the UK, I, I mean, me personally, I've never heard of it before. Until uh, yeah, yeah. If you type, if you obviously, if you Google it, so mochi, M O C H I, um, you'll see what it actually looks like and what fillings it has and what it's typically made of. It's a very popular dish, uh, yeah. Japanese dessert, right? Um, if if you were to go for sushi, they most likely have it on the dessert menu, right? Anyway, so she had come home with these mochis. Uh, actually, one detail that I left out is these mochis were labeled as vegan. Right. So it was perfect for her. Um, Non-dairy, you know, non-dairy dessert that she could take in and not feel guilty about. Right. So she had come home with these mochis in a container. It was serve yourself. So you had to grab tongs and put them in a a box and then they weigh it and etc. And she had come home with them. Now, this was around maybe eight, like 8 p.m., 830 p.m. My parents and I had just finished dinner. So she had came home. Hi, Mark. Hi, Joe. You know, nice to nice to see you. Mark leaves as he usually does, um, and then she brought the mochi down to the to the kitchen table, and she said, "Look, Whole Foods has mochi now. Let's share it." Me, I'm not a big fan, but my mom was like, "Okay, let's let's split it." So she had purchased six pieces. Um, they're about the size. They're they're ju- they're almost there's they're just as big as a macaroon, right? And, and they're like spongy. So she had cut them in half, and then they, my mom and her had split it, 
right? And I didn't even bother having one because I was busy watching TV. And then my sister and my mom shared, uh, I, I guess, the two or four pieces that they were eating. And then she went upstairs to decompress, right? Take her contacts out, change her clothes, whatever. The way that I remember it is she had come down the stairs um, and she was stumbling down the stairs uh, and she was gasping for air, right? Um, I At first I thought she was whispering, right? But my mom immediately knew what was happening. So like if I, if I replay it in my head, which I hate doing that, but so she, she had come down the stairs and all I heard was mom. And I thought she was whispering, but I guess my mom had looked at her and realized something was wrong because she said, Joanna, what did you eat? And she knew straight away. I, immediately my mom was like, she knew that she was having an allergic reaction. Um, and her EpiPen was in her hand. So as soon as my mom said that, Joanna, what did you eat? Joe, to me, call 911. As soon as she said that, I looked at her and I looked at my phone and I didn't know what was going on. And it took me a second to process as I was calling 911. So I was on the phone um, with 911 and all while this was happening, uh, I guess, uh, because my sister was struggling um, and, you, you know, like her throat was closing up. She was going through... Where the oxygen, like, yeah, you can't breathe and, yeah. So her throat was closing up, obviously, very quickly. And my mom had sort of co come to support her from behind, right? And and all the while she's like fiddling with the EpiPen that is in her hand and trying to fiddle with it to figure out what was going, like if she, had she activated it, did she use it or not? I'll return to that in a second about the EpiPen. Um, but so in the meantime, she eventually passed out, right? Because her throat had already closed up. And my mom, who is a nurse, my mom's been a nurse for 40 years, right? Um, obviously started doing CPR compressions, right, to, to get the blood flowing. Because for those that don't know, when, when you stop breathing, your heart stops. And that stops pumping, you know, pumping blood, pumping oxygen to all the parts that need it, right? And what felt like eternity, which was maybe only 8 to 10 minutes, um, the ambulance finally arrived. Uh, we don't live far from the hospital here, um, but obviously it felt like an eternity. I remember, uh, so the, the, the emergency services woman had stayed on the phone with me until 911 arrived. Um, and obviously I'm, I'm just walking around, like walking between the balcony, or not the balcony, the, the front porch to inside, watching my mom, waiting for the ambulance and, and paramedics to arrive. And as soon as I heard the sirens, and saw the fire truck. So when you call emergency services, um, all emergency services arrive. So the, the fire trucks, the paramedics, and the police arrive. All three of them arrive when you call 911, at least here anyway. So I've, yeah, so at first the fire truck came because fire tr firefighters here are first responders as well, right? So first the fire truck came 
and I screamed at the top of my lungs, here, here. And then they had driven right by. But I realize now that it was because the paramedics were right behind them. So they just came just to make sure that just in case the ambulance got stuck somewhere. So that, that's why it happens that way. So the fire trucks had gone by, paramedics right behind them, pulled in, um, you know, paramedics rushed in. We explained what was going on. I hung up with, with emergency services and, and um, they took over CPR compressions. Um, and, and then I could just remember the chatter that was happening among them uh, saying that I, you know, I don't have a pulse. Um, they had to defibrillate her, right? Uh, to s- stabilize her. And I use that term very loosely, stabilize, right? Um, because if she had, if she had died on the spot, they, the, the outcome would have been different. They would have taken her somewhere else. So the, the objective was to get her heart, uh, started again, stabilize her so that they could bring her to emergency, uh, to emergency at the hospital, which is ultimately what happened. So they defibrillated her. They got her heart uh, a very low pulse and they said, okay, we need to go to emergency. So was, was she in the ICU at that point? I mean, what, at that point, did, did you feel potentially she could have recovered from it? I, I know, I know it's, it's really hard. I can't, I can't imagine obviously what, what you went through and obviously witnessing that, but the kind of the first day in ICU, what what was kind of going for your head at that point? Did you feel like that potentially the, she could have got over it? So, so see, the thing is, is that at that time, I knew my sister had allergies, obviously. We grew up together. But I'd never seen her have any type of allergic reaction outside of scratching. I was like, oh, I think I'm allergic to that. That's the extent that I saw. That was literally the first time I had ever seen anything like that. But yeah, but also I had no idea what what anaphylaxis actually was. Like what it what what happens during an allergic reaction? I had no idea. So sure, I saw her pass out. But yeah, I, at the time I was like, okay, like you know, the doctors will 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 help her, right? But it wasn't until, so, so when we got to emergency, they obviously brought her to the ER emergency room. Um, and, and, you know, forgive the, the graphic nature of these descriptions, but like, you know, we were in front of the operating room doors and she started uh, having seizures. And I found out later that it was because she had, uh, had well she died from oxygen deprivation to her to her brain right so because she had gone so long without having oxygen to the brain she started to seize in the the er and they had to you know um i guess inject her with epinephrine to 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 subside the alert the the anaphylaxis and i guess a bunch of other stuff so it wasn't until maybe uh i guess like two or three hours after the initial reaction that we ended up in ICU and not realizing how long we were going to be there. Because at the time I thought she was in a coma, right? I thought that she would wake up 
at some point, you know, whether it be a year from now or a day from now or something, right? But what I didn't actually realize is that she was brain dead because of the anaphylaxis. A lot of people just don't understand that as well. And I've obviously with Joanna and, and, and there's a few very similar stories where I've interviewed people in the UK that when someone goes into anaphylaxis, anaphylaxis shock, like you said, like it starves the brain of oxygen. And the longer it starves the brain of oxygen, that's obviously the more serious it can get. And um, it's, it's just crazy that I think a lot of people just don't understand that. You know what I mean? They don't, they don't understand the severities about allergies and like, like you said, when someone goes into anaphylactic shock, it is life or death, right? Yeah, if I think back on it, the amount of time that had passed between uh, her her passing out for the first time and her being loaded onto the ambulance, I want to say that was maybe twenty minutes, right? And that's uh, like if you if you have zero oxygen passing to your brain for two minutes. That's dangerous, you know, and that that could place you into a different um, brain state, for lack of a better phrase, right? But twenty minutes, you know, now now thinking back on it, twenty minutes, uh, I remember distinctly uh, when we got pushed into the room, into her room, uh, in the ICU. Um, that one of the first things that the doctor said they were going to do was an EEG test. And I don't remember what it stands for, but I know what it it, it tests the electrical signals uh, of your brain, right? So they had done this test, and the way that they had, had explained it was um, they had shown us like a, a I guess the scan of it, and they said a normal functioning brain it looks like fireworks, right? in terms of electrical signals that your brain gives off. Um, but when you looked at my sister's scan, Joanna's scan, it was dark. It was pitch black. It was almost as if the lights were turned off, so to speak, right? So this, remember, Daniel, this is arriving at the hospital the evening of the um, of the reaction. So the second we got there, she was already scientifically and medically brain dead right because 20 minutes right but then it's, yeah it's like you said it's the longer it is the more scary and scary you know what i mean i can't imagine um what like kind of going through that and i mean you spent 17 days in um icu with by joe side every day i mean i can't i can't in, again, like uh, because I had, I didn't know, I didn't know anything about food allergies other than oh, if you eat something that you're allergic to, it's bad, right? So in this in this entire time period that we were there, um, I again hoping for her, you know, she'll wake up or something. You know, the doctors will find a way to, I don't know wake her up or something and I just didn't I, I couldn't leave her right so at the from from a, an emotional and 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 I guess 
just from a like a, this decision that I made was that I have to I have to make sure that my parents are okay and that everybody around us is okay. So I'm going to take the reins here. So I said, Mom and Dad, you go home and you go to get some rest and you whatever, do whatever you're going to do. I'm going to manage this situation. So I, I stayed there um, for technically 16 days, uh, sorry, 17 days, 16 nights. Um, and I was there all day. 22 hours a day. I only went home to take a shower. So the way that it happened was I, my, everybody would go home for the evening. Um, and then they would come back the next day. I would stay all day there with them. And then maybe around eight or 9 PM, I would go home to shower while my parents were still at the hospital. I would shower, decompress, and then come right back to the hospital so that my parents can go home and go to bed. And that was the cycle of things. Throughout that, throughout those days, people were coming by, visiting, you know, obviously dropping off stuff, saying get well, and, you know, uh, just hoping for the best and people showing their support. And obviously for us learning that the, her condition was just worsening. Because obviously she was on a respirator because, you know, she couldn't breathe on her own. Um, man, her face. Like, I just, I just remember. So she's, I mean, it must be so hard. I mean, in regards to when it got to that kind of seventh deck, can, can, this might sound like a silly, silly question, but she can still hear you, but... When when you are like by her side, and 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 and, and I think that's something from interviewing other people which have been in that this that same situation, and, and um, kind of speaking to them because I know that they can still hear them, but like, like you said, it, after that, it, when you've got to make that decision, I can't. Yeah, look to her. Well, I spoke to her all the time, but like, you know, in that, in the moments where, where everybody had left and it was just us again in the room, you know, I would sit by her bedside and I would tell her everything that I was sorry about, um, you know, cause, cause big brothers can be jerks, right? I was, I was a jerk big brother, right? I mean, it's just the unsaid thing with siblings right like the older siblings always going to be anyway but yeah like i i always spoke to her and and i fully believe that she could hear us um there were moments where you know um like i i would i would see tears uh roll down her eyes come from her eyes and then you know the nurses will have an expl a medical explanation for it obviously but but like i i fully believe that she was just she wanted to get out you know she wanted is like she was trapped inside of a box or something and just wanted to get out and you know i i see her like when I when I picture just 
those moments, I, I know she could hear us right up until, you know, the, the moment where we had to make a decision of what we were going to do. And I imagine, I mean, what you went through, and you, I mean, the way you've kind of painted the picture, I, I kind of feel kind of all your emotions. I, of, I, yeah, I can't imagine obviously as a family kind of that whole experience and having to kind of go through them experiences and emotions again. The reaction was caused by the cashew milk um, and it wasn't from kind of what I've kind of spoke to you, it wasn't kind of labeled very clearly on the, the, the glass, is that correct? Well, after the, after the first night uh, in the hospital, um, uh, we, well, me, me and my mom uh, had gone back home while Mark, my sister's uh, partner, and my dad stayed at the hospital. So me and my mom had gone home to do some investigation. So um, we had asked Mark, you know, what did you guys eat? We said, oh, we had the Greek food. But the, they, ha they always go to that Greek place, and that guy knows that my sister has allergies, right? So process of elimination is, is the dessert. So we went to the freezer because we had she had put the leftovers back in the freezer and then we had looked at the container but the container had not nothing on it other than how much she paid for it so we suspected that it was that because that excuse me we suspected that it was that because that was the only other thing that she had eaten so there was no way of knowing uh, that evening. So I said, well, you know what? I'm going to go to Whole Foods first thing in the morning, which is what I did. So I went to Whole Foods. Um, I stood at the door and waited for them to open. Like I, they open at, I guess, 8. I was there at 7.55 waiting for them to open, right? And I went straight to the display that had the mochi. And... And looked around at it. And I'll give you the photos of what I took pictures of, right? So it's a freezer, a serve-yourself freezer, a couple of tongs, some empty boxes for you to fill yourself. And then when you look in the freezer, you see the different flavors and everything is kind of, you know, mixed together. They're all different colors, but everything's sort of mixed together. And it's, you know, it shows you the vegan flavors on this side and then all the regular flavors on the other side. And then I was looking for an ingredient list and then on, I guess, attached to the shelf, there's a little, it looks like a bunch of recipe cards, right? And they were attached to a ring and then those were the ingredients of each flavor. So you would have to, you know, grab the recipe book and flip through the flavor that you were getting. And finally, I, I saw the flavors that she had purchased and the first ingredient said cashew drink right? Cashew milk, cashew drink, whatever. And I took pictures. I sent them to my mom right away. I was like, this is it. This is what did it. Right. And then I, I just obviously sped back to the hospital and, and that's where we began to, uh, to sort of discuss, you know, how everything happened the way that it happened. So yes, it was due to her nut allergy. So Joanna was allergic to all nuts, tree nuts and peanuts. Uh, she was allergic to seafood, all seafood, actually. So shellfish and, um, you know, regular fish as well. 
Uh, and she, well, and then she had like the, the more milder allergies to like dust and pet, pet hair and stuff like that too. But those, the, for, in terms of food, those were the serious anaphylactic, uh, allergies that she had in combination to the, uh, to the eczema that she had as well. So it's crazy to think like, like the way the information was actually display, like displayed on the glass, it didn't say like contains nuts or it. It's, yeah, so it wasn't very clear, obviously, the allergens were actually in the ice cream. Uh, it wasn't until like maybe a month later that I actually approached Whole Foods. So my sister had already passed away. Uh, we'll get into the details of that in a second. But so she had passed away. So I went to Whole Foods maybe a month later and I said, I need to speak to your general manager of the store. General manager comes up and I said, is there somewhere private that we can speak? So he, but he was a little bit weirded out because he's like, what is this guy here to talk about? So we find a, a corner in their staff area. And I said, I just wanted to let you know that um, my sister came here on this day, purchased this mochi that you guys have on sale. Um, she was allergic to it and she died two weeks ago. Uh, and obviously extremely taken aback, super empathetic. And he's like, you know, oh my gosh, like, I'm so sorry. Like, what, what can I do? And I said, I need you to put me in touch with whoever is in charge of food safety for either your establishment or Whole Foods in general. And he said, 100%, here's my email, here's my business card. Um, and I didn't tell him that I had knowledge of the food industry. I just said, this is what I need you to do. Put me in touch with someone. Um, Maybe a week later or a couple of days later, uh, I get, uh, first of all, I get a phone call from, uh, from someone and he said, hi, you know, I'm so-and-so from, from Whole Foods. Uh, I am the uh, food safety head of Whole Foods. Um, I heard about, you know, this, you're the manager of this store contacted me. He's like, can we set up a formal uh, phone call? Uh, in a couple of days, and I'd like to hear the story. So I said, yes. Uh, we had that formal phone call. I explained to him exactly how it happened. And then I also said, and by the way, I've been in the food service and retail industry for almost two decades. I'm familiar with all food practices um, in, in, for food safety, food certification, handling, um, even retail space. I'm familiar with all of these policies. And here's what I need you to change about your food policies. Um, and he was very supportive, uh, obviously, uh, to listening to me. Um, and <laughs> I, I also recorded the conversation as well, uh, just because I'm, I'm someone who just needs to document everything. And, um, yeah, they were very supportive about things and, you know, they, they offered to make a donation to our cause as well. Um, which I would hope for them was a, you know, just a show of support and not, uh, you know, not anything else outside of that. Um, and, and I guess, I think maybe a week or two weeks later, I didn't hear from them after that call. 
And I also tried to contact him again, and he never responded until much later. Um, But then a friend of mine sent me a text message and said, "Look look at what I found at Whole Foods. And the signs had changed of of the of the display. So now instead of the flavors just saying the flavor, it actually said, you know, salted caramel contains nuts. All they did was change the thing. And I'll, I'll give you the photos of it. Maybe you can put it on the screen. But there's a there was a before photo that I had taken and then an after photo. And I said, oh, well, they've never... They, well, yeah, they they changed a few things, but now I was curious to find out if that was, you know, just in my province. Was it across the board? Um, you know, because he said that he was the food safety head for uh, the United States, Canada, and the UK, right? So he was in charge of all Whole Foods uh, globally. So anyway, so they had made some changes, which was great. I personally did my own investigations as well. I even made a video about it and put it on YouTube. Um, just telling the story and sharing my experiences with dealing with them. Um, and, you know, for the most part, I, I commended them for making the change. He eventually contacted me afterwards to tell me about the changes they had made. Um but also, and you know, as much as I commend them for it, 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 it also struck me as, you know, this is something that needs to be addressed for all companies, all industries, all restaurants across the board, because food safety practices are, uh, you know, they're, they're overlooked in some cases because people, people and especially businesses go through the motions of things because they have to. And I think it differs it differs a bit, doesn't it, from what I think like country to, to country really in regards to kind of like the food regulations. I know in the UK we've got Natasha's law, which is coming to practice. So if it is made on site, it's got to declare the, the top 14 allergens, which I don't know, do you have a, a law similar to that over in Toronto? So here's the thing about laws and policy changes here in Canada. Okay. doesn't matter whether it's, you know, food allergies or anything like that, because Canada has a massive is a massive country with very few people in it. Um, I'm going to go ahead just to offer my opinion about our, 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 our government and our system is that it's a lot harder to make changes because there aren't enough people behind it to back it. If you compare. Yeah, if you compare it to the United States, well, the United States also has massive, you know, massive landmass, but they have um, multiple states with tons of people. You know, like if you look at the landmass population ratio of the United States, it's wall to wall people, right? North, south, east, and west, it's all people. Um, So there's there's tons of, you know, I guess congressmen and congresswomen and state legislators and their governments want to make changes for their communities. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll offer Elijah's law um, as, a, as an example of it. You know, my, my friends in, uh, in New York, um, the Elijah Lavi Foundation, they got a law passed in New York um, to make sure that, you know, there were allergy um, protocols in the state of New York for daycares because Elijah was three years old and he passed away at a day- daycare from his dairy allergy. Um, and, you know, and then the Natasha's Law, they're in the UK. Fantastic. Um, and there are other couple of organizations in the US. But when it comes to Canada, 
there were there are people that will listen, but the Canadian government, um, it's not that they don't care. Like I, I like I don't know enough about the po- the the processes of things, but it's really hard to get a message across because our our national food allergy association has you know has tried to get these policy changes over the over the last little while or for the longest time because previous to my sister there had been multiple allergic reactions that have you know caused death uh, in this country and for some reason nothing you know like they they have made it as far as I guess getting a book to someone for them to review it, but not, no changes have been made, um, and it's obviously really frustrating uh, as well. I, I, you know, I put a lot of faith into into Fair um, Food Allergy Research and Education. You know, being the the largest um, food allergy organization, I guess globally, even being out of the United States, but you know, you know, offering support and resources for food allergy families, but. And I think that's amazing. Obviously, like you, and I know a lot of the training. You, you go to different restaurants, and I've I've, I've seen a, a few of your videos, and and using obviously the tragedy, what did happen, to 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 raise awareness now about like different people can, different practices can kind of take it more serious. Definitely in the kind of restaurants. Like. So I, I mean, at some point, actually, it was around it was around the time of the funeral, where my dad had said, Joe, we need to do something about this because, you know, this was a food allergy that killed your sister. Like, what what can what can we do? Um, and then, you know, we started sort of just um, just sort of brainstorming, like, what kinds of things could we do? And just for some reason, I had set up a GoFundMe page. I guess in the beginning, it was to try to help support um, you know, funeral expenses and all that stuff because that, you know, funeral expenses are obviously the the worst things to kind of endure, especially when you're not prepared for it. Um, and and I I think I was just looking to raise like a couple thousand bucks, like two or three thousand dollars, and then I had checked it maybe within the week and it was like at ten thousand, and then it went up to like fifteen thousand, and I was like, you know, the amount of support that we were getting from people. Um, a lot of them were obviously, uh, you know, my our friends and our family, but a lot of them were just food allergy families that shared in our grief and our story. So I think it was just seeing that amount of support where I was like, we need to start an organization that tells the story. I didn't know what I was going to do at the time, but I was like, we need to do something. So at the time, I was like, I'm going to start the International Initiative for Food Allergy Awareness. That's what it was called. <laughs> it's yeah. quite long, isn't it? <laughs> and and the, the idea behind it was to obviously um, provide awareness and educate people um, by telling our story. And the there was always a disclaimer um, where we said, look, we are not by any means... You know, I'm not a I'm not a doctor. Um, you know, I barely know anything about this. Um, but my mom's a nurse as well. But the disclaimer was: we are just relaying already available resources, stuff that you can get already. We're just telling you our story, using these resources and sharing it with you, so that you know what happens during a food allergy, how you can prevent it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. 
me being um, a public speaker and very articulate in the way I speak, I knew that I could handle that because I'm used to public speaking anyway. Um, also, me being a chef, a, a former chef, I knew that I could speak the language of people that work in restaurants and re in food retail and all that stuff. And that's the thing. The, the culinary and chef industry, no matter where you go, is a very ego-driven industry. And I, what I mean by that is <laughs> most chefs, because I used to be a chef, right? Most chefs are like, don't worry, I know already. I know everything that I need to know, um, so I don't need to learn anything else. And the second you say to a restaurant body, uh, oh, we have training for something, the amount of eye rolls that you get from all the employees um, is like, oh, here's another training session. Most of us never showed up to stuff like that, right? Um, so being able to, coming from that background, being able to speak that language gave me, um, gave me an edge, gave me an advantage on, on yeah. It helped so much as well. I think like everything from obviously, like I said, being um, working in restaurants, obviously being TV hosts, I think all that experience kind of built up to fate as well in regards to, having that experience of, and that language to know how to kind of talk about it in a way which is going to resonate with them. Being able to um, utilize, I guess, my, my, my knowledge of storytelling, you know, working in the film industry and producing movies and stuff in the past, knowing how to properly tell a story um, so that your audience is hooked every step of the way. Because, you know, we've all sat in front of boring, boring movies and boring presentations and you know, if there's no reason for me to listen to you, I'm not going to listen to you. I'm going to spend all my time on my phone. Um, so being able to know how to tell the story was obviously a huge uh, advantage as well. Um, and that's also part of the reason why, Daniel, I ended up changing the name of the organization to FATE. Um, because obviously the previous name didn't quite roll off the tongue <laughs> either. But, um, you know, the acronym FATE stands for Food Allergy Training and Education. So that worked out perfectly. But at the same time, there's no way that you could look at my story and not think that fate had anything to do with it. Because everything that I've done in my life leading up to this point has allowed me to be able to share this message and get our message across. That's fate as well. Yeah, I think that's so important. And even like meeting Jan, you could say, was absolutely fate, which was kind of um, Joanna's childhood friend who she kind of got brought up with. Um, and obviously, you, you, being that age as well, you probably bumped into Jan, but obviously you would never really kind of thought about it. But she kind of got back in touch when she kind of heard or kind of come across your Facebook post and, and obviously wanted to kind of give the support to the family again. Um, how was that? I mean, that, that I mean, that is fate, isn't it? You know, I mean, uh, some some issues really, really sad has obviously brought you two very close together. Jan uh, is my girlfriend, my partner, um, and she actually grew up with Joanna, my sister. Um, they were childhood besties, you know, BFFs. Uh, she was always over, and you know, they were you know playing and all that stuff, and. Obviously, me being an older brother, I'm five years older than my sister. Um, you know, you don't really pay attention, especially like when it's when it's an older brother and a younger sister. There's rarely any any commonalities there. So, you know, so I didn't really pay attention because 
you know, they would play with, you know, dolls and whatever other stuff that girls play with. And then I would have my boy stuff, right? So I never really paid attention to my sister or her friends um, when they came over or anything like that, because that was her and this was me. And, you know, obviously I remember seeing her and meeting her and, you know, I would obviously poke fun at them over the years. Um, and I guess, you know, people tend to grow apart as they grow older. So in high school, they kind of lost touch and I never really saw Jan again after that. Right. And, um, it, it, obviously life just went on, carried on. And, um, when, when Joanna was in the hospital, um, I had started to share on my social media photos of us, um, you know, just kind of growing up. And then it came to a point where one post had uh, just basically told the story. I was like, most of you have guessed by now that my sister had suffered a tragedy. And I told the entire story of what happened in an Instagram post. And then that's the one that kind of blew up and, and spread like wildfire. Um, and then around, I want to say day 15, 14 or 15 in ICU, I got an email from Jan and the email had said, Hey, Joey, um, you know, I, I don't know if you remember me and Jan, Joanna's friend. Um, I started seeing all these things and hearing things from people. I just wanted to reach out to you to make sure that it's not a, you know, like it wasn't fake or anything like that. And, and she, she left her phone number. So I called her from the hospital. Um, and as, and I said, yeah, I mean, I told her the whole story and, uh, because it was already so late at the time, uh, that we were in, in ICU, I had explained to her, I was like, we are letting, letting her go. Um, you know, she's going in for organ donation surgery, you know, in a couple of days. Um, but I can keep you posted on, you know, funeral arrangements and stuff. And she's like, I need to, I need to come and see you guys. Like, can I come like support or visit in any way? So we, we all ended up going home, uh, the day before during the day, uh, some people came over to show their support. Uh, and she came over that day and that was the first time that I had seen her in maybe 20 years. Um, and you know, it was really just, you know, reconnecting and explaining the story and all that stuff. And she was there for the funeral. She was there for both viewing days. Um, and for some reason we just stayed in touch, you know, um, how are you over the lot next little while? And, you know, we just started talking more, talking on the phone. Um, and you know, this was, uh, this was September. Now, Joanna's accident was in August. Um, and then by like October, we, I guess you could say we were dating by October, like within a couple of months, which I look back on it now, I'm like, that's so fast. But <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, I think, do, do you think it brought, obviously it must have brought you very much kind of more closer together and a more kind of personal connection as well. Cause obviously, um, both grieving and, and kind of both going through this, the same emotion that, yeah. History, right. You know, she knew everything about my sister as much as I knew, right. If not, maybe more because 
I didn't hang out with my sister. She hang out with her, right? So, you know, there was, I guess you could say that there was, um, you know, the the connection and the history of my sister, you know, sort of connecting us. I mean, there again, there's no way that you can look at that and not and not see that she, my sister had done that from the afterlife. Like, there's no way that you that you can't look at it in that way. And that's a stroke of fate. That's, that's, you know, you don't even have to be spiritual to say, wow, to that story. Right. And I, I continue to tell it because a lot of people sometimes ask us, Oh, how'd you guys meet? And I tell that story. And by the end of the story, people's jaws are on the ground. My jaw is always on the ground because it's like, how can I know I, it, it is, it's crazy, isn't it? But like how kind of like the, the stars align sometimes. Um, and if, even, um, before the, the, the tragedy of obviously you being a chef and you're and then obviously um what did happen obviously the tragedy what did happen to Joanna but since then obviously setting up fate and meeting Jan it's 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 weird how it all kind of it all kind of interlinks in a in a in a very kind of strange way you could say um yeah it's, and it's incredible and, and you know what it's it's been it's been almost almost two years uh, no, been almost three years now. We're go- going into year three, um, and we another stroke of fate. And thanks to Joanna, we are expecting a baby girl now. Congratulations! So uh, I know this this is going to come out closer to April, and um, yeah. So you know the fact that now we're having a girl is also just mind-blowing to me like I'm getting emotional even just thinking about it because like just everything is just just a stroke of fate and like thanks to my sister and all that stuff but you know just to sort of get back to um, and just to sort of close off the the part of of fate as an organization um, you know the the being able to sort of share the story with the skills that I have have um, allow us to get the message across in a very impactful uh, way where people are engaged from beginning to end while telling the story. Um, you know, and before COVID, um, we were busy. We were going to schools. We were going to restaurants. We were speaking to uh, other organizations like camps, um, foster, uh, foster home organizations like speaking to the parents that would be fostering children um just so many or different organizations that wanted the knowledge um especially you know coming from a food service background there were a lot of restaurants uh that wanted the knowledge too so um post covid it's it's been difficult because no one you can't gather anymore uh and it's been pretty difficult to get the message across so you know i I, i'm thinking about well not thinking about i know i have to sort of transition to doing digital presentations so um you know i i mean very strange world isn't it how it a lot of it like it's all kind of going more even with the podcast like i was so used to doing doing it with the guests kind of sat with me but i mean with it being online now like you said like i can do interviews to people like yourself um, from all over the world so yeah I just want to say thank you so much um, Joey for kind of coming on the podcast to kind of 
um, share Joanna's story and yourself and hopefully it really kind of resonates with people from kind of around the world that allergies are really serious. So yeah, thank you again for coming on the podcast today. My pleasure, Daniel. Thank you so much for for having me. And it was it was really great to to share the story. And, you know, I know, I know a lot of, uh, well, I mean, you had said it earlier that, you know, you weren't, you, you were, are sometimes careful with how you uh, bring up the point of telling the story. But as I mentioned to you, even off camera, the whole point of this is to share the story, no matter how painful it is, because we have to paint a picture of how serious this epidemic is. And and awareness, like, I think we mentioned, we had this conversation yesterday in, in the pre-interview, which was, if you don't live with food allergies, you don't care, right? Not not in a negative way, but not and not maliciously, but it's not part of your... It's not part of your daily routine to be aware of it. As, even if you work in, especially if you work in the restaurant industry, if you don't live with someone or have food allergies yourself, it's not yeah, on your you, mind, right? So yeah, it's not the first thing you kind of think about when you kind of wake up, and the last thing you think about before you go to bed is, you know, what I mean, like if you, like I said, if you don't know a family member or friend, then you're not going to go this the kind of severities of it at all. You know, just again, just uh, just telling the story and sharing the story hopefully gets people to sort of wake up and say, maybe I should be a little bit more conscious when I plan a party or when I go out to eat with someone um, and, and whatnot. So, you know, my, my resources are global. They are available to everyone. So feel free um, to share that because I'm absolutely, happy to share and Absolutely. And I think it is, like you said, so important to kind of talk about these stories. And like you said, it can be quite painful bringing up the, the kind of memories and the kind of emotions of what went what happened on that day but like you said it, it's so important to kind of make people aware so yeah thanks again Joey for coming on the podcast and I'm sure we'll stay in touch soon yep yeah.